This is Tech Talk Today, episode 275. Welcome into Tech Talk Today. My name is Chris. And I'm Angela. Hello, Angers. We have a lot to get into today. It's It's been a busy week for tech news. Yes. And there's many things to get to, including some, some JB exclusives. But let's start with the embattled Cambridge Analytica. Yesterday announced it would be ceasing almost all of its operations. It's shutting down its companies in the U.S. as well. And this decision was made just two months after the whole Cambridge Analytica slash Facebook data data harvesting scandal. They're shutting down, Ange. Yeah, rest in peace or not. (laughs) Yeah, it couldn't have happened to a nicer group, right? (laughs) Um, In a statement posted to their website, though, they were fired up. They're not just being uh, humble. They're not just sort of... I said, we're sorry we upset everybody. We're sorry we violated your privacy. We're sorry we tried to manipulate. No, no, that's not that's not the route they took. No, they're going down swinging. Over the past several months, Cambridge Analytica has been the subject of numerous unfounded accusations and despite the company's efforts to correct the record has been vilified for activities that are not that are not only legal but are also widely accepted as a standard component of online advertising in both the political and commercial arenas. That is really significant, Andrew, because this comes down to the issue we've been talking about for months, which is when you give up this information to a third party app mm-hmm. through Facebook, then does Facebook have access to that information? Then can Facebook allow the other users to have it? So it's all quite complicated. It depends on where you stand on this issue. Um, and in the meantime, Cambridge Analytica has also said They have unwavering confidence that their employees behaved ethically and lawfully, and they believe that it has been a siege of social media coverage that has now forced all of their suppliers and customers to withdraw from them. So as a result, they have to shut down their doors. Yeah, they're declaring bankruptcy. It's not their fault. It's your fault. Yep. How dare you? I hope you feel bad because now Cambridge Analytica has to shut down. Well, never fear, actually. It just seems like the firm is going to relabel, maybe rebrand a little bit. There's already filings uh, from the group under a new company name, so they're wow, they're gonna be really okay. yeah yeah they're gonna be okay yeah they've 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 already begun the process. Okay, this is the the right hand. Hey, we're bankruptcy. Left hand. Hey, we're creating another company. Yeah, we never went anywhere. It's one of those. Oh, you don't want to work with us anymore? No problem. But have you heard of our friends over at this new company? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They'll give you a great deal. Uh, Speaking of a great deal, it looks like NPR and other public radio stations and the folks behind This American Life may have just gotten a great deal on Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast, which is widely considered, especially amongst our audience, as one of the best mobile apps for podcast listening, has been acquired by a collective group that includes NPR, WNYC Studios, WBEZ Chicago, uh, and This American Life. It's mm. being labeled as an unprecedented collaboration. So what does this mean for our listeners? I don't know at this point. I mean, I know it's definitely setting off my spider senses. Sure. Um, it's weird because it's not one singular company. It's not right. just NPR. It's it's several different groups working together, public radio groups. It's a joint venture. They came together and uh, they're supposedly going to keep Pocket Cast as its own subsidiary, its own individual um, company that they're just going to help finance and, and, and steward. Mm-hmm. So that could be really good for Pocket Cast's future development because you and I have had behind-the-scenes dealings with Pocket Cast, and it's, it's yes. been clear to us that they are understaffed. And they've even admitted as much to us. Yep. 
And so they've needed resources for a long time. It's like it's it's like one of these things where I love I love Pocket Cast, and yet I have problems with Shifty Jelly as a podcaster because they are unable to keep up with the support demands of a large podcast app. And this could address that. But the bigger thing that concerns me here is, and this sounds really stupid, but it is actually happening. We are seeing the creation of big podcasting. Oh. Large former radio companies that are becoming podcast content creators that are shifting the industry in a direction that I don't think is good, and it's one towards data collection. They want to know who's watching or listening, and they want to know how far, what you skipped. They want to know what ads you've listened to. And they want all that kind of context information that you know YouTubers get about a YouTube video, about retention and all those stats. They want all that data, so that way they can go back and make their shows even more appealing so they can sell you more ads. Um, right, their shows, not... Not the small, you know. Well, and I don't think it's a good way to run a show. I don't I don't think uh, data-driven shows are going to be the best possible product. I think they should be driven by a passion. And, you you know, you follow that creator because of the they share a similar interest that you have a passion for. And I don't know. It's just doing a data-driven show. Um, there's been experiments out there where, they'll, where there are some shows that get reassembled uh, at download. And then they watch the metrics and apps like Stitcher and other places that allow for data collection. And they'll actually serve people different arranged podcasts to A-B test which ones retain listeners the best and have the best returns on the ads. And that's a good money-making idea. But I, it's not really in the spirit of podcasting. And podcasting is supposed to be an open platform. All you need is an RSS feed and your favorite software, and you're good to go. Consolidating these things into apps, which I'm not saying is happening with Pocket Cast yet, but it's concerning because this is a group that is interested in advertising. Don't let the public radio part um, confuse you. They 100% have ads, and uh, they need data to sell those ads. Traditionally in podcasting, the only data that the advertiser needs is the promo code. So like, if we tell you to go to do.co slash action and you do it, that's the only tracking that needs to happen. But it's, it's not how you get a $100,000 ad contract. You know, when you're talking, when you're talking million-dollar ad deals, which these are real numbers that some of these larger like NPR and This American Life are dealing with, promo code engagement is a pretty flimsy thing to, to pin that whole deal on. A million bucks, they want real data. They want to know what they're getting for that purchase. And so they have to move podcasting in that direction, just like they do on the radio, on television right now. If you're Chris Hayes on MSNBC, you literally get the immediate ratings for the segment you just did while you're at break. And if it's not playing well, they'll restructure the show right then and there. If a guest isn't doing well, if they're not harping on something enough, they'll start harping more. They, they rearrange the show in real time with real early you know, preliminary numbers is what they call them. Podcasting wants to move to that same model. And it's even easier where you're serving up MP3 files off of a web server. You can have a back-end system, reassemble that stuff and spit it out. Maybe maybe that's what happens with this purchase. Um, maybe maybe PocketCast just gets a lot better. PocketCast is obviously one of the largest independent platform, independent podcast players. PocketCast was likely NPR and This American Life's largest podcast player, the largest client that they had. So outside of like Apple Podcasts, and you can't buy Apple Podcasts. <laughs> It'll just be interesting to see. I'm sure there will be follow up articles that we'll cover in future Tech Talk Today's. So yeah, subscribe to the RSS feed. 
And you know, today forward slash RSS. You could do it in Pocket Cast. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we'll watch it. I'm a, I'm a Pocket Cast fan, so I'll be watching to see where this thing goes. Huge for them, though, at least in the short term, it's going to mean I bet that app gets better. They have a new redesign they've been working on for a while. They haven't been able to get the door. Maybe this will help them get that done. So it could be exciting times for Pocket Cast listeners. I just have larger issues about where the podcast industry is going, the fact that it is even an industry now, and that everybody has a podcast. Mike Morell, former CIA director has a podcast now like everybody has a podcast these days and we're watching big media come into it and try to try to sort of change it into something that's more palatable to how they work we'll see where that goes hopefully our little corner of podcasting will be less affected we'll see Speaking of making things effective, DigitalOcean has a hundred dollar credit they're offering if you go to do.co slash action do.co slash action. DigitalOcean is infrastructure you can deploy in less than 55 seconds. 12 data centers around the world, 40 gigabit connections coming into them hypervisors and SSDs top to bottom. You go with the $5 a month rig, all SSDs. You go with my favorite system, the three cents an hour rig. That's about, I don't know, it works out to be about 20 bucks a month. All SSDs or the new sweet spot for around $15 a month. You can mix and match resources, the most appropriate for application. Now you can run these things at just hourly. So three cents an hour is my favorite system. And that is just, it's way more, it's, I don't know, 10 times really the power I've ever really used. I've never maxed these things out. 10 times might not be it, but twice the power. I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you anymore because we just bumped them all up, all of our recent droplets to that point. And now I just don't even bother checking them because they've got more than enough overhead. They'll last us for years at three cents an hour. At three cents an hour, that's that's mind blowing to somebody who used to rack servers in data centers. Uh, I mean, Ange knows that we used to have data centers where we'd pay a thousand dollars a month just for the bandwidth. Yep. Just for the bandwidth. It's just insane. And now you can do it for three cents an hour. You can do cluster deployments if you need to spin up tons of rigs at once. They have droplets, not rigs, droplets that are optimized for certain types of compute workloads. And with that global availability, you can make sure that wherever your server's at, the audience that you're targeting is going to get great transfer. That's why over 150,000 businesses rely on DigitalOcean. Do.co slash action. Go there, sign up with a new account and get a $100 credit. It lasts for 60 days and you can really get something done. Do.co slash action. Also, just a little heads up, lots of new documentation for the new Linux releases, Ubuntu 18.04, how to install Apache MySQL PHP stack on 18.04, as well as many, many, many others are going live on DigitalOcean right now. do.co slash action. I think today we probably could have just done the whole show on Amazon. Does Amazon have its own podcast? <laughs> we should do Amazon Seriously. Weekly. I yeah. mean, it would drive me a little nutty, but we had... So many Amazon headlines. So we've tried to consolidate it down in just a couple that we think are interesting. Let's start with the local angle for us. Amazon's playing hardball because they're fighting a war in Seattle that if they lose will create a domino effect. The retail giant, as the media likes to call them, has thrown down the gauntlet this week here in Seattle when they announced that they were going to stop construction on a big new building project because of a proposed city tax. It's a new law that's supposedly going to address the housing crisis here in Seattle. And they're charging large companies like Microsoft and Amazon $500 per head. And it's kind of clear that this is really just kind of make money off these large companies that are bringing in, you know, thousands of new employees that are really driving up the price of housing. And I guess the city wants to offset some of that. It is not something that Amazon is a big fan of right now. 
Back in October, the company said it would lease all 700,000 square feet of office space in the Rainier Square skyscraper. Now Amazon is considering subleasing that space and has also halted construction planning at a second site at 7th and Blanchard called Block 18. The two offices combined would house 7,000 new Amazon jobs. The company says today's announcement is directly related to the pending vote on the so-called head tax in city council. And the city council is not responding well, you know, because I wasn't sure. Are they going to roll over because there's a lot of jobs and Amazon is a big player with a lot of influence or they're going to go to war? Councilmember Shama Sawant says it shouldn't stop that effort. Amazon's extortionary message should be a call to action. We don't respond to threats by cowering down. We respond to threats by fighting back, winning in Seattle, and sending a resoundingly positive message to working people in every city that if Seattle can tax big business, so can you in your city. Which is exactly why Amazon is fighting this. She, she nails it right there. If this goes through and Seattle taxes Amazon, they're sending a message to all the other cities, you can do the same. Yep. That's why they're taking a stand here. Yeah, I think, and you know when what didn't, what wasn't covered in that article that I wish I would have tried to figure out is if this is a annual tax or if it's a one-time thing. I would imagine it's annual. Yeah, it looks and, like it. And it's pennies in the bucket for Amazon, really. 500 per head. Yeah, you I know. mean, 500 times, times 7,000 in just this one building area. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Not for that company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of money to us. But yeah. anyway, it's just, it's kind of interesting. Gravity Payment CEO based out of Seattle tweeted just a bit ago. He says, Amazon's success in Seattle has squished families out of housing. When faced with $500 per employee tax on a large and medium business to fund affordable housing, they're threatening to relocate 7,000 jobs elsewhere. Disregard for society or capitalism at its very best. I think that's really the debate there. Uh, I can see both sides of the of the story here because it's not just about what happens in Seattle. It's five hundred dollars here. It could be seven hundred dollars in L.A. You know, seven hundred dollars in San Francisco, four hundred dollars in where you know Texas in, anywhere in insert name of any city, right? Like once you start that yeah uh, process, I don't really know so many taxes. Yeah, and I don't feel like it's solving the problem. You and I, before the show, were talking about L.A. just passed a law to make it illegal to sleep in your vehicle or, or an RV, RV yeah. which is crazy. Like, I could almost understand the vehicle thing, but yeah. an RV that's actually meant to be slept in. Well, the problem is down there, there's so many people sleeping in vehicles that it's starting to, like, tra there's, like, nowhere for the trash to go. Uh, there's vehicles that are sometimes in different states of disrepair, so, like, they got sure. flat tires and stuff. Uh but it's sort of it's sort of not addressing the core problem. The core problem is that it's too expensive to live. Yeah. The core problem is is that many people can only afford a place to live or a car to drive, and they can't afford both, and they have to get to work, and you can sleep in your car. And so they're punishing people who by with law enforcement, with fines, who are just holding on to society by like their fingernails. They're trying to be productive. They're trying to compromise and live in their vehicle. And it's because of a lot of these larger companies that come into an area that pay a lot more than all of the other businesses around them, which is great for the employees, but it just really has driven up, especially here in Seattle, it's driven up the cost of housing big time. Yeah. And we don't even have it as bad as some people, some places do. While we're talking about Amazon, though, uh, one more story that caught me by surprise. There's lots of news, lots of news around Amazon, but this one um, just makes so much sense. And you can really see Amazon's bigger strategy. Amazon has launched its own pet product brand this week. It's called WEG, and they're starting with 
pet food, dog food. And it's sort of a basic kind of approach. The WAG brand launched yesterday with a dry dog food, uh, and it's going to expand beyond there to other pet supplies as time goes on. It's available only to Amazon Prime subscribers. So you have to be paying that monthly or annual fee uh, as part of your deal to get access to this new brand. And the stock for companies like Walmart and some of the pet supply stores are down because this move is seen as a direct threat to Petco, PetSmart, and Walmart because those are large and actually just general. It says in here two general grocery stores. Pet mm-hmm. pet food is a like a stable staple for grocery stores, um, and it could be a major blow to them. U.S. pet owners spend seventy two point one billion wow on animals a year. Jeez. 30 billion of that's on pet food. Now, do you get your dog food from Amazon? Like not, not obviously have. not wag, but we have. you order it on Amazon. You know, we've uh, we've moved to a, a raw dog diet and uh, raw dog. yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So, he's been eating raw dog food and uh, that's we don't get that on Amazon anymore. But uh, uh. I had I had experimented when we when we first when we first got Levi. Remember Amazon sent a sample of dog yeah. food but it wasn't wag it wasn't no. their own but how interesting is that i randomly get in the mail they were testing they were testing a, a bag of dog food yep and so wag is the new brand and you'll see it more they're doing this they're doing this now with their own clothing brand uh baby products they're also getting into there's amazon it makes diapers sense. Oh, you know totally. talk about somebody who you know utilizes third parties to sell products and is like hey we see what's selling let's make our own i yeah. mean Genius, yeah, scary, <laughs> and they could make they could make up to thirty billion a year just selling pet food. Isn't that that something? is a huge market? I yeah. know it's that's yeah, really it's really it's really something. Um, and they could just get in all kinds of they could get into cats, they can get into fish. But stuff. let me just say, they're never going to get the person that brings their dog to work because they go to the pet store and let the pet, you know. Yeah, that is fun. It's fun to be able to go to a store that you can bring your pet to once you get a dog and you're like, oh, we can go to that store? Let's go. I mean, yeah. And yeah, yeah. there's a co-op uh, like a uh, um, farm supply store uh, up by where we have Jupes parked and uh, they know Levi by his first name there because Hedia loves taking him there. You know, <laughs> oh, hi, Levi. You know, <laughs> I don't even know if they know our name. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. Now talking about something else that makes a lot of money, Apple. Now, you may have heard everybody grousing about uh, the MacBook keyboards, like since the Touch Bar generation, since 2016. There's the, there are these new butterfly keyboards, and people have groused that they're just awful. Well, uh, AppleInsider.com did some legit journalism, and they got their hands on service repair records. I can only imagine how they did this, but they got actual data on how bad these keyboards are versus older models before this redesign. And it's damning as hell for Apple. They, I think after reading this report, if they don't update the MacBook keyboard at WWDC in June, uh, they're missing the boat. Here is, uh, here is an article. It says, well, you know, Apple Insider started seeing anecdotal reports of more and more keyboard failures. So they decided to actually look into the data. They collected the service data for the first year release of the 2014, 2015, and 2016 MacBook Pros with an additional slightly smaller data set on the 2017 model given that they don't have a full year of repair data yet. So um, the hard, like the summary is, I'll give you the details, but really the summary is the 2016 MacBook Pro keyboard is failing twice as often in the first year of use as the 2014 and the 2015 MacBook Pros that had the older keyboard design. Same with the 2017. It's failing quite a bit, too. 
Uh, they, they collected the data from assorted Apple Genius bars in the U.S., and they've been reviewing this stuff for about two years now while they're collecting the data. The 2014 MacBook Pro model saw 2,120 service events in the first year, 118 related to the keyboard. Now, that's not too bad, right? That's pretty good. But when you go look at the newer MacBook Pros, the numbers start to jump way up. Uh, Their warranty events are much higher and much more of them. 165 were related to touch bar issues. 11, so it breaks down like this. 11.8% of 2016 MacBooks were having keyboard issues when only 6% of the previous MacBooks. The numbers continue to go up when you start to look at the 2017. Its date is early, but they've already captured 94 keyboard issues, uh, which is already 8% early early in the data. And the further you go back in the MacBook line, not only do the failure rates drop down, but this is the most damning part, the replacement for even a single key failure, one key switch on the new MacBook Pro keyboards, requires that you replace the entire top assembly of the laptop consisting of the keyboard, the battery, the upper metal case surrounding the keyboard, and the Thunderbolt ports, which can cost up to $700 for a single key failure on the new MacBook Pro keyboard, which the absolute highest price you'd be looking at on the older models was $400. Still a lot of money, but way less than $700. You could buy three or four Chromebooks for that price. Can't innovate anymore, my ass. Okay, hold up. Do you remember what year mine is? 2013, 2014. Oh, okay. Mine's old. Because my Thunderbolt port is no, one of them isn't working, uh, yeah. which is annoying as heck. But, um, you know, this is really interesting because I, I would be curious to see the second year, third year numbers and how fast that probably goes up a lot of people well like especially you (laughs) you wait wait to call in the warranty or to get it fixed because it may not be covered under warranty or whatever but yeah this is definitely something they want to look at because as as people's apple care is running out they might start seeing a a spike in taking these things in as people trying to get them fixed before the warranty's over right right Man, this but is embarrassing, it's expensive. though. It is. It is. Yeah, you, they, they have to. Like, So fast forward to you know, Tech Talk today when WWDC happens. Hopefully they will do that because I, I bet this is a bleeding part of the company. And, yeah, it, it just seems, it seems like it's the biggest complaint. And now we have actual data, too, that shows that it mm-hmm. really is a higher rate of failure. So the thing that they solved with this keyboard is they got rid of key wobble. Um, so like if you just, if you accidentally nick the corner of the key, it's a consistent press. It's like a, it's still a good consistent press, That's nice. the, but it's shallow. It's, it's easily breakable. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't feel that good on the hands over in almost every way. It's a, just a disaster. And now we have the hard data here that shows that as soon as they started doing the one with the touch bar, it pretty much start going downhill. I want to do a little uh, announcement, something uh, more positive. Humble Bundle folks have a Python dev kit bundle. It's, it's great. If you want to learn Python development, they have a software bundle and a book bundle that goes together for 12 days, 22 hours, and 6 minutes as we record. You can write Python code like a seasoned developer with one of their courses. They have the PyCharm Professional Edition book. Uh, they have Illustrated Guide to Learning Python 3. And then there's more you can unlock, too, like the Tim O'Reilly Python book and more. It is a nice bundle, and depending on how much you pay, you could get a lot of books, plus some of the uh, revenue goes towards charity. I think, you know, 
you could pay as little as uh, as ten bucks, but I would I don't know that to me is worth hundreds of dollars. So go take a look at it if you're interested in learning Python. We'll have a link in the show notes. Tech Talk dot today slash two seventy five. Look for the humble bundle. And the one other little thing I found. This is so cool. It is a tiny computer in your web browser, a fantasy computer for making, playing, and sharing tiny games. It has built-in tools for development. It's got like some code, sprite stuff, maps, sound editors. It's all very uh, 8-bit retro looking, and you can work in your browser to build these games. And it has a lot of the assets you might need, like, you know, you can get little guys and their swords and, the, and, and pre-done maps that you can lay out and tweak. It is a very fun little experiment. It's called the Tick 80 Tiny Computer, and um, it is a great way to learn, create, and play with basic computer stuff. It's You'll get a technical understanding. It has a 24 by 136 pixels display, so it's tiny with a 16 color palette. <laughs> it's it's some, In some ways, the constraints that make it great, it's sort of the kind of computer I grew up learning on, and so uh, I just wanted to toss it in the show notes. You can go to it directly if you want, tick.computer for that. Now, before we go... We have to get to people's emails about their jobs explained to us very poorly. Hit it off, Andrews. Martino wrote, I stop development teams all over the world from doing their jobs to protect them from themselves while also developing without much resistance. (laughs) Okay. Brian wrote, I count things randomly and report the results. And then in parentheses, he said, accountant. I also explain computers to people that don't want to know anything about computers. IT guy. And then the final one is from Peter. My job described badly. I press buttons all day on a machine to solve problems that only exist because of these machines. Wow, that is a great one. Yep, that's a coder. We, we want to hear yours. I'll do another batch. Techtalk.today slash contact, or you can tweet them directly at Andrews. Let her know. Now, before we go, it is time for our Kickstarter of the week. And Andrews found a really interesting one that uh, I hadn't really ever given any thought to because it's not something I struggle with. It is a new take on a tactile interface, much like Braille, but it, it's it's easier to learn. And it's based on some really cool technology. So Elia Frames has a standard alphabet font customized for tactile reading. And because it's a standard alphabet font, it can be shared between the sighted and people who have a visual impairment. Elioframes is based on the Roman alphabet. We use the major characteristics of each letter and enclose them in a frame. So it's building on a reader's existing knowledge. The frame tells a person where one letter ends and the next letter begins. It enables them to systematically explore each letter with the same finger movement and it also tells them where that letter is in the alphabet. That's a pretty neat idea, and it makes it much easier for people later in their life to learn. And by later, I mean after the age of 21. And they're doing pretty well. They have a goal of $25,000. They've raised twenty-six five with 435 backers and a solid 17 days to go. So they're in the zone already. And what I love about this is it's ingenious, but the technology they're using is so up my alley. They're basically using a hacked 90s printer to make the test prints. Basically, you ask how do you make a new tactile font. You have Andrew, who has all of the innovative, awesome ideas and all of the research experience and background. And then you need someone to kind of bring 
certain assets together to actually move things along. The printing process is essentially me and a piece of hardware called the Tektronix Phaser. It's an outdated printer that has definitely been hacked to provide us the tactile output that we need and as efficient as it can give us. That efficiency is one page about every 30 seconds. It breaks down and needs troubleshooting. When it works, it works, and it has been useful for the pilot program, but there's a better and a more efficient way. We're coming to Kickstarter to ramp up production and bring this to a much larger audience. And I, I think they can do it. Yeah, the cool thing about it is that with, with regular Braille, it's, not, uh, it's just one size but this one is scalable so you can have larger letters without issue. And, uh, and I just, I really like that each letter is in a frame. If you watch the whole Kickstarter video, it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah. And because they're basing it off of Roman numerals and then with the frame box, like you just mentioned, they say that amongst other things can dramatically reduce the learning time. So previously cited adults who lose their vision, uh, which one of the creators of this project had that happen to a family member, they need about, 10 months to learn Braille. Um, and that's if they're above average intelligence and very motivated. And they need five to 11 years of Braille study to achieve an average reading speed of 23 words per minute. Wow. Five to 11 years. Yeah. Okay. So with the ELA frames, they say Braille can be learned in three hours. And after a few weeks of study, the reader will be at 25 words per minute. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable achievement. So I think that it's definitely worth something looking at. If you have anybody in your family or have an experience with this, you might want to look at it. And they're already funded. It's called ELA. It's E-L-I-A, a modernized Braille system. And it's up on Kickstarter right now. They have pictures of that hacked 90s printer on the Kickstarter, too, if you if, if you just go there to look at that. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we'll have that linked up. All right, so before we get out of here, a couple of JB exclusives for you guys to know about if you're a patron. We've posted, as promised, tours of the studio before Teardown and after Teardown at uh, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. So if you want to see a behind-the-scenes of the work that Noah, myself, and the rest of the team did over Linux Fest, that's available to the patrons. Also, just went live for the patrons, an exclusive Alan Jude-hosted live edition of TechSnap with Alan, listener Jed, and, of course, the delightful Mr. Wes Payne, recorded at the booth. It's like a 90-minute TechSnap that's available exclusively to our patrons at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. In other words, it is like, even though this week's TechSnap has Alan in it, it's not the same thing. It's more. These are two, yeah, it's yep. more. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. We've, and just, you know, in general, we've put out a ton of shows this week. There will be two Coder Radios this week. There were two Ask Noahs that went out on top of the Standard Hall and the Patron Exclusives. Lots of content this week. Also, if you're an unfiltered patron, there was a patron-only show last night. Yep, yep, another, yeah. And we just do this from time to time. We're not going patron-only on these yeah, things. No, yeah, Don't just, worry. It's, it's all concentrated in this one week, but it's, it's just... It's really because of Linux Fest and the opportunity for uh, the different parts of the team to get together and make stuff. And so we're doing it. And it's it's something we always want to deliver to our patrons on a semi-routine basis. And we just finally got an opportunity to strike and we took it. But uh, there is, like uh, like Ange said, there is also a, a standard episode of TechSnap with Alan in it. And it's and it's just been it's just been a heck of a couple of weeks. We really enjoyed Linux Fest. 
And if you're a patron, there's one more one more exclusive thing. The entire Saturday live broadcast has been posted for our Jupiter Signal patrons as, as well. That's it. That's it. We're all done now. <laughs> we just had to get it out of our system, guys, because we love doing that for you. Now, look, we'll be back next week with more Tech Talk today. Like Ange mentioned earlier, you can subscribe at techtalk.today slash subscribe. And you can send us in your job explained badly at techtalk.today slash contact. You can follow Angers on Twitter. She's at Angers. I'm at Chris LAS and the whole network. Guess what? At Jupiter Signal. Thanks so much for being here and we'll see you next week. Next week.